0: Got you tied in knots. if you religious thoughts. Come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Happy
1: Hour. Oh, yes, my friends. Once again, it is time for your favorite podcast and mine, The Heretic Happy Hour. And uh, my name is Keith Giles. I am the author of the Jesus Un series of books that is available on Amazon and uh, all, all the places you might find books and ebooks and things like that. I am joined by uh, my amazing co-hosts, Katie, Derek, and Matt. Before they introduce themselves, though, I'm, I fra- failed to mention, this is the beginning episode of a brand new series. Uh, we are going back and sort of revisiting parables because our previous time was so much fun, and uh, we can't wait to jump into it. So, uh, Katie, Derek, and Matt, say hello.
0: Hello. Uh, my name is Katie Valentine. I'm the creator of the Metaphysical Christian Facebook community, and I'm recording this with a little bit of a cold. So if you think I'm one of the men tonight, you might get us confused. You might not be able to tell us apart by our voices, because my voice is like two degrees lower than it, two decibels lower than it usually is, whatever that word is. Happy to be here. I can't wait to talk about parables.
2: Hey, everybody. I am Derek Day. I'm the author of Deconstructing Religion and a whole bunch of other uh uh, not like, um, crazy stuff out there. But anyway, that is me. And so now I'm going to kick it over to my man, Matt.
3: That makes me Matt. Matt DiStefano, author of Heretic from the Blood of Abel and a couple of other books. And I have an announcement today, which is that we, again, have a sort of sponsor. So let's, Whoa. producer man, let's get into it now. You've heard of the Gospel Coalition's book, Before You Lose Your Faith, you know, the book about deconstruction written by a bunch of people who refuse to deconstruct. Well, now there's Before You Lose Your Mind, written by authors who are actually deconstructing, so you know we know what the experience is like. And Before You Lose Your Mind, you'll hear from renowned authors like me, Matthew J. Distefano, And then there's some others like Brandon Andrus, Michelle Collins, Derek Day, Brandon Dragon, Jason Elam, Maria Francesca French, Mark Gregory Karras, another Matthew J, Matthew J. Cortman, Josh Rogie, Reverend Dr. Katie Valentine, and Skeeter Wilson. Oh, and Keith Giles edited it. So he gets all the credit. But the best part, outside of my contribution, is the price. Only 99 cents on Kindle and 9.99 in print. That's the price. That's it. That's at cost, people. Pick it up today on Amazon from Choir Publishing.
2: All right. So we have a hotline. And if you want to get in touch with your favorite heretics, you can do so by exercising finger dexterity, which I found that there are some people that have issue with that term, finger dexterity. But I like finger dexterity because if you are, if you are adept with your digits, there is a lot of things that you can do. A A lot. lot of them being a lot. Whoa, so many. And and one of those is dialing the hotline, which is 240-343-7379. Once again, 243-7379. And so we have a text. Roll that beautiful text footage, please. And it says, hey, guys, I love this show. It's in all caps, so he must really love it. He has a question. How much of the Bible do you think is actually a conglomeration of some of the more redeemable pagan stories? And that is from Ernie from Canada. Mm. Thank you, Ernie.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Ernie, from Canada.
3: Well, first, first off, we are worldwide, <laughs> and we already knew that, but someone from what? Canada listening, all right, we'll take it. Yeah. Hey, who wants, who hey, want, uh, who want, hey yeah. A. Um, I want to compliment you. the Rob question. Said he,
2: he, he, didn't, he didn't include which province. From Canada. Yeah, it it's could be whatever.
3: In, in, in none of it.
2: Nobody knows
0: except people in Canada. So, <laughs>
3: <laughs> who, who wants to tackle this one first? Katie, Katie, I, Katie, well, I, I just I'll want to it. start
0: by saying I really enjoy the framing of the question by the more redeemable pagan stories. Oh, sorry, <laughs> I'm not sure what, so what makes it more redeemable <laughs> or less redeemable, but I'm really enjoying that. And uh, I'm framing my answer. I'm just starting with the compliment. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say that too. Like, uh, I'm
1: kind of trying to rack my brain. Which are the more redeemable pagan stories? Um, I can't really think of any. That's a good
2: question. Uh, I good think question. that that should be
1: a topic for a show.
2: Yeah, redeemable pagan,
1: pagan stories. Redeemable pagan stories. Add it to the pile. I mean, the list.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, for instance, um, I was doing just a tiny bit of research on on parables earlier today, and I read a very I read a very nice article by Marianne Beavis, um, who I referenced in the first parable series uh, that talks about like the similarities between parables and fables like Aesop's fables right and so it's not that the parables are a redux of them they're more like in the same genre as or in a similar genre as, as um so I'm gonna I'll tackle the question um so how much of the bible is a conglomeration of some of the more redeemable pagan stories I think if I have Ernie, if I could reframe the question uh, in light of what I just said about fables, I would say that the Bible isn't really a conglomeration of pagan stories. It's that there's pagan stories, there's ancient Jewish stories, there's ancient Christian stories, and they're all emerging out of the same Middle Eastern in- cultures that are influencing each-, influencing each other left and right. Um, And so we have like Noah's Ark, and then we have the sto- the flood story of other ancient Near Eastern cultures, and there are some similarities, but there's also a lot of differences. Like every culture gets to tell it in their own way. So I don't think it's a conglomeration. I would see it more as a um, new creation with a lot of influences. Yeah. So a lot, but like a lot. (laughs) But not the whole thing.
3: It sometimes sort of annoys me when people use this fact that you said, Katie, as a way... To just kind of poo-poo something, and, and believe me, I am no apologist for the Bible. That for, we know this, right? We're on episode 128. We know this. However, this is just the way they did story making back then, and so you know, like I point out, the uh, the Genesis crea- creation narrative, the flood story, like you just mentioned, the Cain and Abel murder myth, founding murder story. These are all similar in other cultures. But just because there's similarities doesn't mean there's not also differences. So it's always good to weigh kind of the, yes, they might have come from the same. They might be, um, you know, a polemic against a story that already exists. But let's focus on some of the differences because I think with the differences, then we get what the writer is trying to actually... Prove or what point they're trying to make when they point out different or when they when they have differences in the stories
1: yeah and i, th- I think here's the thing that's interesting too i uh, thank you for bringing that out because i mean we do we still do this today it's a similar thing like we sort of like like you said we will sort of critique oh that all those guys did was they just took a story from this other culture and then they just you know kind of like retold it and put a spin on it whatever as if that's a lack of creativity or they were stealing or something like that. But see, we kind of do the same thing ourselves even today. Like, for example, um, this is a weird analogy, but Wendy and I just saw an amazing movie, uh, called Everything Everywhere All at Once. It's a really great film. Everybody should go see it. And as I'm watching this film, which I, on the one hand, I would say is an incredibly original film. At the same time, after watching it, even as I was watching it, I can say, well, you know what? That's a little bit, this part here is a little bit like The Matrix, or this part here is a little bit like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, or this part over here is a little bit like, you know, some of the Marvel films, or this part's a little bit like Kill Bill. But, and yet it's still an original story, right? But that, but just because you're, you're borrowing influences or ideas or concepts from other films doesn't take away from the fact that it's still, it still has something unique to say. It's just it's using those kinds of images and ideas to tell a new story, and I think in it's, it's a kind of a similar way um, to the way some of the some of the stories in the in the Bible, Old and New Testament, will kind of treat that. I think that was a common thing, and so we do the same thing today in different formats. It's just, I think it's just something. It's just a different way of telling stories and uh, taking common or familiar themes and ideas, and then kind of using them to tell a new story uh, in, a, in a new
2: way. And, and Keith, I'm, I'm right there with you on that because this is like the hero's journey, right? That, that, that basically in every period of time, there are stories that are told. And because of the period of time and because of the level of knowledge and cultural similarities or differences, you, you're going to get some merging right you're you're going to get some uh some common denominators there and and that's what i think it is i don't i don't think that the bible is just a a total rip off of like um, babylonian or sumerian stories i think that all of these stories basically they kind of came into being around about the same time and between a combination of everybody's kind of on the same page uh in terms of knowledge and also um the game of telephone, <laughs> as play. Basically, that's what you get, you know. And and so, uh, you could just as easily say that some of these other cultures get some of their storytelling from Hebrew scholars or Hebrew teachers. So so maybe some of the, some of the Bible t- Bible stories that we know spilled over into pagan cultures. We don't we don't really know. I mean, but basically, I think it's just the whole hero's journey thing. Uh, being manifest by period. Yeah, hopefully that answers your question, uh, Ernie, or, or just
1: gave you more more questions to ask for next time.
2: <laughs> and, and next time, Ernie, tell us what fucking province you're from. I mean, you're, you're insulting all of your fellow Canadians.
0: I learn about new Canadian provinces all the time. So I'm also curious about that. So, um, so it sounds like we are ready to move to our heretic of the week. Now this heretic has it all. We're talking island fever. We're talking mushrooms, and we're happy to introduce you uh, to this heretic who's going to put that all together. It's
4: the heretic of the week. Hi, my name's Kevin, and while other people might say I'm a heretic, for me, I don't think that I am. Hi, Kevin. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, I love the um the creativity with which people approach that answer. Some people are very reluctant, some people are like, "Yeah, call me a heretic. I don't care. <laughs> Kevin, another unique response. Welcome to the show. Yeah, the question we always ask our guests is, why would anyone consider you a heretic?
4: Mm. man, there's a it's, I guess that depends on who you ask. you know, if you ask pastors from another church in Hawaii who have sat down people from my church to make sure they're okay, they might give you an answer. If you ask uh, other people around Hawaii who I've been scared might protest outside of our church at some point, they might give you a different answer. But I think out here, since I've been leading, because I'm in Hawaii one of the reasons people might say that is my blatant disregard or indifference to the normal boundaries they operate within in their day-to-day lives as Christians. Now, to me, that's one of the unique things that I believe Jesus does as well. Sometimes I think he intentionally and creatively subverts boundaries and markers. Other times, I think what he does seems so radical because he just lives and acts as if those things that govern so much of other people's lives aren't actually there. So he's not walking over boundaries intentionally at times. He's just simply living his life so freely that it offends and makes other people so uncomfortable. So I don't know. I think maybe sometimes it's just my freedom and my playfulness with that I sort of embody as I live and lead the church that I've been leading for almost a decade. Um, I also think... You know, for the mystic, beliefs are not what make our faith what it is. You know, it is, for us, it is not I am who I am because of the beliefs that I have. It is, there is this deeper self that has beliefs, but knows that it is not those beliefs. So my relationship with beliefs in and of themselves and how I play with those things and how I hold on to them probably make people feel really uncomfortable. And on a practical level, there's probably just too many LGBTQ people in our church at a time that people are comfortable with. So on a visual level, that might be the thing, so... That's enough for me there. It depends on who you talk to.
1: Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Actually, when you the big, when you were first answering the question, I thought, oh, you're just a troublemaker. You're the guy that likes to rock the boat, and and uh, I'm sure when you were in, in youth group or whatever, you were probably the one that they were like, uh, when you raised your hand, they were like rolling their eyes. Oh, no, not that guy. But you know, but you you made an interesting point. Uh, by the way, I say that because I'm the same way. I, I, I can never just leave something alone, right? You have to always pull the thread. You have to ask the question. You have to say, but what if, right? Um, but the, but what you were saying right there is so fascinating, you know, because I, I run into so many people who are really confused by that statement. Like when you tell somebody, you are not your beliefs, that just seems so counterintuitive. And I think it's partially because uh, a lot of people, if you grew up in evangelical Christianity, you're kind of told that you are your beliefs, that your beliefs do kind of define you. Um, And so can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, help. So let's say I was saying, hey, Kevin, that makes no sense to me. What do you mean I'm not my beliefs? Obviously, if I believe X, Y, or Z, you know, I'm going to behave a certain way. So, you know, I I sort of in a way am what I believe because I believe this, this is what I do, how I behave. So how can you say, you know, your beliefs are not part of your identity and and what's the distinction there?
4: Well, I think when it comes to radical transformation, the the journey is really not the beliefs of the self. It's actually the radical death of the very self that you are over-identified with that is having those beliefs. And I I do think that happens for evangelicals. Now, perhaps if you ask me more about my journey, which I think you might, we'll talk more about how I've never been in, when you brought up youth group, I've never been in youth group. I didn't know those existed (laughs) growing up. I had a very unique journey to get to. I've learned about those things on the peripheral later in life as I ended up in a Bible college and my life took this turn. But your beliefs to me, I think the way they function for people, say when you talk about evangelicals, is the beliefs are like a spark, That get the fire going. That's cool. The spark is necessary. It gets the fire going, but the spark is not what is going to cultivate that flame 10 years later. You know, you start off with your beliefs and hopefully eventually that person will move into direct and immediate experience of the spirit. And so when I say you are not your beliefs, it's, that's one of the things you experience in contemplation and in prayers, it is actually a conscious experience of the self that is beneath before and beyond any of the beliefs that you have. So you have an experiential knowing that says, I'm over here having beliefs that are over there and I'm not those beliefs and I'm not those thoughts and I'm not those emotions, which is why for the mystic, it's always easier when you talk about deconstruction or going through stages of faith, it's you're asking me to change beliefs that were never the deepest part of who I was in the first place. So those aren't the earth-shattering things. They are for people who are so over-identified with their beliefs. So beliefs are helpful. They're Eventually, they're just not going to keep taking you further into more and more freedom and more and more spaciousness and more and more liberation. So they're helpful. They're just not everything.
1: Yeah, and, and that approach allows people to allow their ideas and beliefs to change without so much stress and anxiety uh and fear because again they it sounds very much like when someone's meditating right like when you're in meditation right you're instructed to uh, allow thoughts to come into your mind don't try to hold on to them don't grasp them but also don't you know don't push them away either but just observe them. Here they come. There it is. There it goes. Here's the next one. And then the more you do that, the more you recognize, you do kind of start to recognize it. Oh, I'm not those ideas. I'm not those thoughts that are walking through my brain. I'm the one observing them,
4: right? Mm-hmm, absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. Very cool.
4: Yeah. So beliefs, I mean, they're important, but they're just not as important as a lot of religious people think they are when it comes to loving people when it comes to working for justice, when it comes to compassion, when it comes to your own personal experience of freedom. There's a lot greater limitations on beliefs and what they're capable of doing than I think most people give them credit for.
0: So- I would love to hear a little bit about how you got from point A to point Z, where this is, where you are now around orthopraxy over orthodoxy or or beliefs and you mentioned no youth group I'm trying to imagine I'm trying to imagine life without all the fun songs that I learned as a youth uh, so tell us a little bit about your background and where you started and how you ended up where you are
4: yeah that's that's why i a lot of the <sighs> funny Traumatizing. There's a, there's a thin line between those things for a lot of people in youth group, apparently. But a lot of the stories I hear, I get because, you know, I entered into that world later. So it's me sort of watching a movie. I didn't have those experiences. So I can sort of look at them and laugh at them without without my own personal trauma of, You know, here's chocolate. It's yummy. Or here's a cookie on the inside. There's like cotton because that's the hidden sin in your life. And the kids are like choking on it. Like I never had those things. I just hear those stories and they (laughs) amuse me. You know, I, I went to Catholic school first, second, and third grade. And then in fourth grade, I went to a public school. And at the public school, there was so much fighting and cussing in the LA Unified School District that for me at that age, I was like, this is salvation. Like, this is it for me. We can like this is it, it, it at, at at this school. I remember saying shit once, and this girl looked at me and started running to like the office to tell me, and I was running alongside of her, like no, no, please, please. <laughs> and at the public school fourth grade, I'm like, you can fight here, and no one really cares. <laughs> and I stopped going to like mass, my family, my dad comes from like a traditional Irish Catholic family. And like, I'm like, I'm done with Catholic school. I don't want to go to mass. And my parents didn't push me. And I'm really grateful for that. And I was just talking to my mom recently. And I said, you know what, mom? I left the Catholic church at that age. Like I didn't have any understanding of this is the gospel and this is the atonement or whatever people would learn in an evangelical setting. I said, mom, I left with a pleasant indifference to God. Like I wasn't on fire for God. I had no notion of a personal relationship with Jesus, but I also didn't have the trauma. I didn't have any antagonism. I didn't have any oppositional energy. It was just like an indifference that didn't really make a difference in my life. Like I was like, it's cool. Like, I don't want to go, but I'm like, I'm not tripping. You guys just do what you do. It wasn't a part of my life. That's why I tell people sometimes, like if I say I didn't grow up in the church, it's I didn't grow up in the church culture. Because I really, I didn't know youth groups existed growing up. I didn't know about any of those. I didn't know about evangelical churches. I didn't know about worship, you know, like in the like sort of charismatic sense of it. I'd never heard of those things. So I had, so after that, that's like the background. Cause even though I'm like, that didn't really stay with me in a conscious way, we never know how those things affect us on these unconscious sort of cellular levels. sometimes, our understanding of God operates in unconscious ways within us. That's why people are like, I no longer believe in God, and they still feel terrorized by God when they make mistakes, right? That's a fascinating thing. And so I had, after that, a classic story of, I have everything, but it feels like nothing. And it wasn't because my parents gave me everything. like We were okay. I had what I needed. But growing up, I you know, was playing basketball and was expected to play in college and was kind of doing my thing with there. I got into music at a very young age and had money offered to me at a young age for it. I was selling weed and had money and, you know, you have girls and I had the life as a teenager that at least in my world, everybody wanted. And I knew that I was like, I have a life, everyone around me, even people older than me would want. Why am I still so restless? Why am I still so unhappy? It's that classic, you have everything, but it feels like nothing. And at about 16 years old, I started experimenting with mushrooms, right? So people listening in, my book coming out May 31st, it's called The Making of a Mystic. And the subtitle is My Journey with Mushrooms, My Life as a Pastor and Why It's Okay for Everyone to Relax. (laughs) And (laughs) (laughs) And so at that point, there was this unique journey of those mushrooms started playing a really important role in my own journey. So I don't know if everybody knows this story, but, you know, Thomas Merton, one of the great mystics of the 20th century, in some ways, you know, arguably reintroduced contemplation, you know, and this sort of new trajectory onto non-dual Christianity in the West, right? And he had this experience early on in his life when he was sort of heading closer and closer to his awakening, his transformative experiences, where there was this well-known Hindu priest visiting from India and the States, like probably lecturing at some, like, Uh, like Yale or whatever. His name was um, Mahanama Brata Brahmachari. So Thomas Martin goes to him because he knows who he is. And he asks him for guidance. You know, here's this young white kid talking to this old Hindu priest, like, what should I be reading? Where should I go? And the Hindu priest told him to read the Confessions of St. Augustine and Thomas Akempis's Imitation of Christ. Here's an interesting thing about that. You have a Hindu monk tells this young white male from the West who would eventually become one of the greatest Christian mystics ever to read Christian writers, which guide him further on his spiritual journey towards the fullness of life in Christ. Now, I don't think that was in that Hindu priest's job description was to be a missionary for Jesus. But in that moment, he became, he became this unexpected missionary pointing Thomas Merton further towards the fullness of Christ. And in the same way, mushrooms were pointing me further towards the fullness of life, source, whatever was out there. And I sensed that and I knew it when I was a teenager. It was like every time I took the mushrooms, I would yes, I would have all of the classic tripping out experiences, and I loved it. Let me just not say it was just me only on a spiritual quest. Like walls would open up into multiple dimensions. You know, I would black out on a on a mountain and wake up and not have my eyesight and think I went blind for a while. I would have all these amazing experiences. Yeah, you were a I doing drugs. Them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and it was both. both. Yeah, totally. And it, it was both for me, but I did sense in the mushrooms that they kept saying, yes, but keep going. Yes, you are getting closer. They were the sign that was pointing me further. And so as that was happening, my journey was, I started to see through my own illusions. I took a radical inward journey that eventually led me to God. And I think the illusions part where so many mystics use that language for me, that was central to my own journey was, I'm like, why am I spending so much time playing basketball? Do I love this? Or does my ego just need this for a sense of value? Why do I really want a career in music? Or again, does me having this clout in the street or whatever just do something for my ego? Am I really doing everything for the sake of other people's approval? And if that's the case, I'm not actually free because my life is now held in the power of other people. That bothered me because I knew I wasn't free. And so that all... Led me to this profound, I can tell you in more detail, it's unnecessary, but at 18 I had this profound spontaneous awakening moment with God while I was on mushrooms. It was the tenth time that I did it. And in that moment, I could feel light and love and life being like infused into my body. Like I could feel this radical sense of love. being like To me, it was this cosmic and universal yes that was being spoken over me and really enveloping me into the moment. And what's funny is that night, I was at my girlfriend's house at the time when it happened, who's now my wife, all these years later. I don't know how that happened for her because she's seen me in some weird situations. But even, Keith, when we talked about the role of beliefs, In that moment, I I called my parents to pick me up at four in the morning as I was coming down from that trip. And I remember driving home. So I'm 18 years old. I was driving home and I thought to myself, it's not just that I'm having new thoughts about life. It's the fundamental I that is having those thoughts that has been changed. That is not just a rethinking of concepts and new beliefs. That is the rewiring of consciousness and a transformation of our very foundational sense of self. And so from that moment on, I never did psychedelics and hard drugs again. Because, like I tell people, why would you go back to the sign pointing you to the ocean when you're already in the ocean itself? Never did psychedelics again. It took me a couple years to quit smoking weed after that. It's going back and forth. But. For, that, for me, there there was no pastors, there was no altar calls. My first experience of God was direct, immediate experience of spirit and just universal affirmation. So for me, it was experience and the beliefs came later. And my relationship with those beliefs always reflected that.
1: Yeah, I got to say, I feel a little ripped off because I unfortunately took the Augustine path, but I could have taken the Shrooms path and it sounds like I would have had more fun. Had I, had I chosen the home. Well, the
4: Augustine, you're just going to leave to a lot more self-hatred for a while, <laughs> right. you know, before, right. yep. before.
1: <laughs> yeah, so you move you have to go through all that kind of stuff first. So you some self-hatred hatred
4: and some, like, sexual issues, but after that, you, you know, <laughs> hopefully you can work through that.
0: Yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff. Poor eyesight after all the Augustine, you know, it's really dead. So not only self-hatred, but your eyes are tired,
4: too. Yeah. yeah. I read yeah. Confessions when I was young. I was like, I'm good. <laughs> well,
3: I, I would I would caution, as a fellow reader of Augustine, not, though not any time recently, and someone who's done mushrooms multiple times, if you read Augustine first and then you do the mushrooms, you may have to encounter Satan first because <laughs> I had some trips that were not so... They were enlightening, but they oh. were not majestic. I've had, I've had nice uh, moments with them, but one in particular, I, I stumbled off of a mountain missing my shoes and oh. I didn't know who the fuck I was and it was uh, I haven't done mushrooms since but it was mm-hmm. eye opening in and I guess I needed that and you know maybe mushrooms are, are, are a way to point you I mean it's kind of like they, they do what you need them to do but not necessarily what you want them to do yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: feel like we should have a PSA like we should send everyone to watch an after school special now <laughs> what, what would you do <laughs> <laughs> when to say yes when to say no Right. Augustine or Mushrooms.
4: <laughs> <laughs> when I, you know, wrote this book and, you know, came up with the title, I'm like, that title actually captures the book. Because a lot of it, like, when there's some, like, from my perspective, more evangelical-ish people, I've, you know, i am like, I've been in talks with them about being on their podcast. I give them a little, like, uh what's the word I'm looking for? You know, like a disclaimer, where I say, Hey, I just want to let you know, in no way is this book me, is this me, you know, being an advocate for, you know, the psychedelic, the, 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 you know, healing use of psychedelics or whatever new research is emerging right now. And there's a lot, there is a lot there. Yeah. I say that was just the role of my experience. And I just own that. Cause I'm like the whole book. I'm like, yes, I tell parts of my story of how mushrooms like there's a chapter called Mushrooms and Missionaries. Like I said, how mushrooms were like a missionary pointing me further. And the other one is actually a chapter about that awakening experience. But I'm like, you could do a whole interview on me without you know even referencing mushrooms because so much of the book is just the mysticism of the mundane. And what does it mean to be a mystic? What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be awakened when you're driving with your kids after school and they're being kids after school? What does it mean the day after you're leading a church when your ego feels like this? What does it mean to be separate, distant from, and to not be so over-identified with your ego that you can actually pastor and lead from a free place where you don't burn out, where you never have serious health issues, where you don't over-identify with your role? So a lot of the book is... The feeling, the simple feeling of freedom every single day and how that works out. So I had a little like, uh, on the chapter, I don't want people to think like, this this guy is just doing this. He's a pastor who now ate all these shrooms and he left the church. I'm like, it actually was reversed for me, you know, so...
1: So yes, by the church.
4: You can make a PSA if you. I won't be offended if there's a PSA, you know, disclaimer on this episode.
0: I I think our crowds are beyond PSAs. They'll
4: be offended by the PSA, not you not having one. Right. Our
1: our, our audience will be will be disappointed that we had to say anything. Yes, Uh, but but you know, so get us. So so you had your epiphany. You had this amazing uh, spiritual experience, right? that kind of brought you to this place of realization. But then how did you get from there to where you are now? So like, what did you, then you joined the church or then you read Augustine or what, what happened?
4: <laughs> yeah, at that point, you know, that was that was the Christmas break of my senior year of high school when that happened. And I was ending that year like, Am I, I'm, you know, people, a lot of people assume I'm going to play basketball in college. I, right after that, started recording music for the first time. And I had you know, a well-known drug dealer in my neighborhood offer me a lot of money to support me in that process, you know? And I had a whole different life back then, you know, with what I was doing. But I knew deep down, I was like, everything I've been searching for through all of these different means, I have had experience of in that moment. And it was not a one-time experience I forgot about. It It was this, you know, I have this chapter in the book called Peaks and Paths. And I'm like, whatever you experience on the peak has to become that which you become on the path. Whether it's Christians going to youth group or going to a big conference, like Jesus, next week they're like, what was that again? Or the person who goes to Burning Man, you know, and does what they do and they come back and, you know, they're still just as neurotic and stressed out as ever. They're the same, to me, those are the same things. And... For me, that wasn't a one-time thing. That was my whole life led me up to that moment. That was, I was on a conscious quest for truth before that, because I made it, I had this deep kind of thing within me where I was like, if there's nothing out there that's really real, that's all I asked for. Before that experience, I said, all I want to know is what's real. I wasn't looking for Jesus. I just wanted to know what's real. And I had this thing within me where I was like, if there's nothing out there and no sort of trajectory and intentionality in this universe, well then like, I might kill myself because why would you keep suffering without meaning? You know, that was a part of, this wasn't a small thing that happened. This was my whole life. And this was a life-changing moment. And so through my own process of disappointing and not meeting every expectation every person in my life had, I moved to Hawaii later and I, I, I walked away from basketball. I walked away from music and everything I had worked my whole life for because my girlfriend at the time had moved to Hawaii to go to University of Hawaii. And I was like, one, I love her and I want to be with her. And I was like, two, I have to get away from where I was just to get try to get sober and get out of that life. And going to Hawaii for me was the best thing because nobody knew me and nobody cared about me and I was invisible there. My whole life, I just tried to get other people to see me and to validate me. And now to experience the gaze of God as this universal yes when I'm in a place where nobody sees me every day, I have to ask the question, is this yes from the divine enough? Because nobody else sees me anymore. And I could go back to try to tap dance for him to get him to like me, but I'm not in that life anymore. So moving out there every day was nobody sees me, but do I know what it means to actually be seen? And can I trust that every single day? And so at 20, I felt this pastoral calling and I didn't know what that meant. because I just wasn't around Christians very much yet. I was starting to go to like college youth groups or whatever. And I felt this pastoral calling. And even for me to have this direct experience of spirit and of grace and of love. And when I came, when I heard the Jesus stories, I was like, whatever I experienced was fully present here. And I said, Hey, you know what? If I was born in a different country and had the same individual existential experience, maybe I would associate this direct encounter with whatever religion I was a part of over there. Maybe, but all right now, and that, that can be a disturbing question, but I was like, I just sense that same energy and life in this person, Jesus. So I'm going to start going into the story more. And so pastoral calling, I ended up at a Bible college in, in San Dimas, California called Life Pacific College. It's a four square school. So I was like, oh, now they're talking about speaking in tongues and they're doing all these interesting (laughs) things I never heard of. And I was like, you know what? I experienced God on mushrooms. So I mean, I can't act like life isn't weird. So hey, maybe these kinds of healings and things are happening. I don't know. I've never even (laughs) heard these stories. (laughs) They sound interesting enough. And these people seem very confident they happen all the time. And then I went to Fuller for a few years and I focused on black and womanist theology there. So I was thought I was going to stay in the academy. And then a friend of mine had a dream to move back to Hawaii and start a church. And I tell people I so inhabited this other person's dream that when they had to pull out because their mom got sick, it just became my own. And moved back to Hawaii and started a church in this, you know, the sort of the arts district in Honolulu. And we've been doing that for almost 10 years. But every for me, I'm like, there was everything in my life was a response to that moment at 18. Because it wasn't just my whole life changed so drastically and so immediately because that moment was so spontaneous and so real that completely changed things for me.
0: Yeah, I love the idea that like we we have profound experiences, but then we get years to interpret them. Right? Like mm. It sounds to me like from what I'm hearing from you, you didn't have to figure it out right then. Although I'm sure at 18, you probably wanted to Um, because we always Mm. want to. But it's kind of Mm. that question of like, what does it mean? We can't, or at least in my life, I can't really begin to answer that until quite a bit of time has passed. Mm. It takes some reflection time. And I've I've, I've read enough mystics where I know this, you know, often people have visions, but they don't really understand them until decades have passed. So I I love this idea that you have this profound experience that continues to unfold. If if I'm understanding that right, I don't want
4: to put that on you if that's incorrect. No, we are always interpreting our experience through whatever, you know, stage of consciousness we're in through whatever concepts we have available to us. And I didn't have a lot of religious concepts available to me at that time. And I had no solidified framework that I was kind of, you know, all already operating within. But I did come away from that saying this was a rebirth at that moment. I knew that. And I, like the love and the light and the transformation, I was like that, that I just experienced God. I had enough of I had that and I said this was a rebirth because you know that moment where I said I'm not just having new thoughts but the foundational I that is having those thoughts has been changed I knew there was this deep and radical transformation of my sense of self that happened that was separate from just what I thought but absolutely as time you know that, that's that, that's a great point that you make. You know, later on in life, you, that's why Kierkegaard says, you know, you live life forward and you understand it backwards, but you get concepts and you get frameworks later. Where you're like, oh, you know, even like think about psychologically. Now you understand trauma. You're like, that's why my body was doing that at 21 in those situations. That's why I would shake and whatever. And I remember being in my early 20s and I was at a church in Costa Mesa, Keith called Rock Harbor for five years or, or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, he actually forgot to call me because I was supposed to teach something with him at Rock Harbor. It was my first ever chance, one of my first times ever trying to teach. And he t- we planned it and then he forgot to call me when I found out they did it without me. I actually like got emotional and shed a tear, but don't tell him I said <laughs> that he... But I do remember being in my young 20s and thinking... Why is it other people would say they have an experience of God? And I'm not doubting that, but their life wasn't transformed so radically as mine. And I thought to myself, because my journey, when you think about a spirituality of subtraction and everything's about removing things out of the way, I said, prior to that direct experience of God, I had let go. I had confronted and let go of so many illusions and faced so much of my own ego structure and why I do what I do that by the time I had something, by the time I was in a space to experience this new yes, I had already said no to so much of the things that are getting in the way and sort of trying to convince my heart this is where you're going to find life. But it wasn't until that's, you know, five years later, I'm in church making, still making sense of what happened there. And the more you grow and you your stage of consciousness changes. You have a different view of reality and you're able to make sense of things more and more. And yeah.
1: That's really fascinating. Yeah. Kevin, this has been so great. I really have loved hearing your experiences and your story. And again, still very jealous of you for taking the uh, not taking the Augustine path. Um, but uh, so for people, our listeners, who are uh, listening to your story and want to know more about you, uh, let us remind us again the name of the book when it comes out and how can people find you, follow you online. You have a blog. Are you on social media? You know, all that.
4: The book is coming out on a publisher. I don't know if any of all, if any three of you have heard of it. It's called Choir Publishing. No. And, no. Uh, hey. it's coming out. <laughs> The book is called The Making of a Mystic, My Journey with Mushrooms, My Life as a Pastor, and Why It's Okay for Everyone to Relax.
1: Awesome.
4: It's, co- it's coming out May 31st. And the best way to probably find me and stay in tune is on my Instagram, which is at Sweeney one just the number one. I also host a podcast called The Church Needs Therapy, oh, where nice. you can just type that into Spotify, Apple, or whatever it is, The Church Needs Therapy. And my wife and I have led a church called Imagine, which you can find on Instagram at Imagine HI. But we didn't get into that, but we are actually in the final chapter of Imagine, which we're closing down in a few months after Uh, about a decade of doing this because we have a new season ahead. That's a whole different episode or conversation. But yeah, Instagram, the church needs therapy. Um, Yeah, yeah. I think I'm really excited about the book. You know, if this was, if this was a glimpse, you'll hear more of my own personal story. And also there's things that have nothing to do with my personal narrative and just general wisdom. You know, I have a chapter called non dual and nonchalant, you know, about non dual and what that means day to day. So yes, if you're interested in any of that, please check that out. Buy a copy for you and for your friend. And for your mom or dad too, because <laughs> they will appreciate. It.
3: <laughs> there you go, listeners. Three yeah. three copies. That's the minimum requirement. Yeah,
4: absolutely.
0: Awesome. Thanks for being with us.
4: Yeah, appreciate you.
1: Wow, wow, what an what an amazing guy. Um, I tell you what, I did not expect almost anything that, that Kevin said once we started that interview. Uh, uh, that was, but it was really refreshing and eye opening. And so, yeah, thanks, Kevin, for sharing. Your story, and uh, looking forward to your book.
2: Yeah, awesome. you know, I, I I really hate the fact that you guys drugged me and threw me in a closet for this one. Yeah, but, well, I, but I'm sure I'm sure that because there are mushrooms involved, That's this right. will be right in my wheelhouse.
0: You, just had, thought you, you, were, you hopefully you had some mushrooms with you, and you had a great experience while you were there,
3: or a terrible th- one. I, I think you guys
2: gave me some shrooms. That's what I think.
0: That does remind me of a great bonus episode we did like a year or so
2: ago. Yeah, that that was amazing. When we locked Keith, what was it, Keith in the closet? And where did we put Matt? Uh, oh, Matt was at a nudist. Co- no, Keith was at a nudist college. That's right. And Matt was locked in a closet.
3: Well, we were both at it. Well, <laughs> I I'm out we of were the both closet there. now. But But we're both at the the nudist colony. Yeah, Yeah. we were doing research. (laughs) Quote unquote. I still got pictures
1: Uh I have to post
2: uh, from that. That was Uh a
3: wonderful time. Make sure you tag me.
2: You can.
3: Well, do we have a topic, or we just bullshitting for the next hour?
2: No, Uh, we absolutely have a topic. As Keith mentioned, this is a foray into a new series on parables, and this week we're talking about the parable of the lost sheep, which you'll find in Luke chapter fifteen verses one through seven. And Jesus basically is saying, I got 99 problems, but a sheep ain't one. (laughs)
3: That's right. Wow.
2: That's the
1: intro right there, buddy. That was great. (laughs) Got a 99 prowlers. So so
3: before we even get into that, I think something Katie was talking about, because if if you haven't paused this episode, if you haven't listened to our first parable series, uh, because there was a lot of good stuff in there, and then come back to this. So we'll, now that we'll wait. Let's wait. We'll wait. That, we'll wait. You how long do you want to wait? An hour. I I so no, Five hours. Oh, okay. okay. They, they pulled uh, a lot so of they, dead uh, air came
2: back. So okay, everybody, back. grab a drink. So grab now that you have a
3: drink, you have your pipe filled up. You, you you're listening. Katie was saying a lot of great stuff in that in that first series, and one that really stuck with me is that when we approach parables, they're meant to shock us or the listener, and now subsequently the reader. And they're meant to shock someone out of maybe a certain way of thinking, uh, a certain presupposition they have with life, with whatever, and often going to flip the narrative around. And so just keep in mind as we talk about all these parables, this one and, and the other three, and, and even when we write our own again, if, should we so choose to do that, that is the nature of parables. There, it's, it's meant to be subversive. It's meant to, to kind of, Kick us in the ass a little bit and uh, get us to rethink the way we've been thinking about something. So maybe that is, is a good jumping off point to uh, to get into today's episode.
2: Yeah, one one thing I want to throw out there is that when we talk about parables, something mathematical comes to mind, and that is parabola or parabolic. And in a, in a parabola, basically, you have a line and a point, right? So so it's almost like it, a, a parable in, in, in one way, if you think about it as a diagram, the parabola is, you know, an arc, a long arc around a point, right? And, and so, so basically it's like the long way around the point. But another thing is that if you think about it like a, like in, in modern humor, you have the setup, you have the premise and you have the punchline and a, par- and a parable has all of those things. I think. This is me, that the parables were Jesus's way of telling a joke.
1: Wow, but he wasn't very funny. <laughs> or I yeah, just, I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, here's it the joke. thing.
2: It, it depends on your <laughs> sense of humor. Where you, where you fall. You know, period, period. Think period. We're talking about, you know, period earlier. We're talking about period now. It's like yeah. the, the so people like Carrot Top from. and some people don't. Yeah, Yeah, so. or Gallagher, you know. <laughs> Oh i Gallagher. Yeah.
0: Yes. I think the punchline in this one may come at the very end of the chapter when we're supposed to empathize not empathize with the son who gets screwed. <laughs> to me right. that's the punchline. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Really? <laughs> yeah. um, and so like that but that, that may just be a helpful kind of frame for the parable of the lost sheep because it's so iconic. It's it's been challenging for me to think about it in a way that could shock me because it's so iconic in our in our Christian culture. We see, you know, so many churches have this picture of a really white Jesus with the lamb on his shoulders. Um, and so this is like the first of the three parables of the lost parables in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son, or the, what we call the prodigal son. Um, so it's been fun for me to think about this and to challenge myself to try to even think about it in a new way. Um, and so Matt, I know this is one that you chose. I'm kind of curious, what was standing out to you about this parable? I,
3: I I think that Christians, you know, the average run-of-the-mill Christian, I don't mean that as a pejorative, I mean just your average Christian, um, all knows this parable. They all, they're all familiar with it. I'm sure they've read it a thousand times. They've heard it probably preached from the pulpit. I just, I I want, I think I want them to understand the universality of it. And so I think Christians approach this Still, with an an exclusive mindset of, uh, well, Jesus is just going after the lost Christian who is already a Christian. Whereas I think Jesus, Jesus's mission, often transcended borders, economic borders, uh, honor shame borders, even like cultural and religious borders. You know, you go back to Luke four, where he's telling you know his first quote unquote sermon, is that. Like he's going to, he, he makes the point that Elijah and Elisha bless even Naaman the, Sir, the Syrian. Um, this day of Jubilee is not just for those in, in our crowd. And so I see this as like Jesus would go to the extent of, of going after people and helping others and, and who aren't just the ones we think that, you know, that, 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 that he should. And and I and and so I think this this should shock us into um, kind of an ex- getting out of our exclusivist mindset. And I also think Jesus, to Derek's point, is sort of being funny at the end and ironic. And uh, I don't think he necessarily means that. Anyone is, I think. I think he's. It's like a slight when he says, "I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." I think he says that tongue in cheek. I don't think he means that any of us are really righteous, so that we can, you know, oh, we're already in, we're already in heaven, we're already well, yeah, God's children. Course. I think he's using that as like a a, a slight. And I I think that's that's there to shock them, and I and I like that. I think
1: so. Yeah, I I, I guess I've always. It's funny that you this kind of you were saying like you think a lot of times Christians uh, interpret this as Jesus going after the lost, sort of like the backsliding Christian, I guess. Because that's funny because I never heard of it that way. I, I always thought of it as the he's going after the lost she, meaning the the sinner, the the lost person that hasn't. Hasn't uh, you know walked the Romans road or prayed the sinner's prayer or you know, doesn't know the four spiritual laws or what, any of those things, but but it's funny because if you do think of it that way, then it's like well Jesus is the one going after that lost quote unquote lost sinner non Christian believer person, so well, then what's the problem? Like it seems like Jesus if that's the way you look at it, then Jesus is he, he's he's got it under control. He doesn't like send other shepherds to go get them right evangelize them change them it's like no jesus is going to do it he'll take care of it uh, it's it's all good and he'll bring them back into the fold so it's it's complete it'll become now once again a a complete not 99 but a full 100 like a complete number uh the full number of the sheep will find eventually one way or the other end up in the fold and maybe that's just me reading it through a universalist uh lens but that that's kind of what it how it reads to me.
3: Well, and it's obviously real quick, and then and then I'll uh, you know step aside and let someone else say some things. But it's the opposite of typically how a lot of Christians. If it is like going after the backslid, if it is, this is not how those who deconstruct are treated. No, no. one goes after us. No. Really, I mean, like we're told to fuck off. We're right. told to. <laughs> I mean, not in not so many churches because <laughs> Christians don't say those words. Hold on, right, let me hit my. Own the version, jar real quick. Hit that bell. There, yeah. I got it. You get the Christian version of it, You're right? You know, oh, uh, you know, we will gossip, but we'll call them prayer requests, or, or we'll just pretend like we're in Kafka's Metamorphosis. We pretend like we don't exist. Uh, we've transformed into some ugly monster bug, and now the family just, yeah. Oh, well, we don't talk about you know that anymore. We don't talk about Keith. Yeah, we don't and talk so about like, Bruno. <laughs> or we don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about anyone who's deconstructed nothing. So it's it's like the op like. Again, I don't think most people are getting shocked by the parables the way they should.
1: No, I agree. Exactly. So looking for what's shocking about it, like for a lot of evangelical Christians, the universalist aspect would be shocking. It'd be like, wait, what the hell? What? Um, Yeah, but I I think there's way more to it. And that's what I loved about a previous parable series is that because I, I always have come away from these episodes, even with parables that I think I know, I know what this means. With all these different perspectives that I would have never considered before.
2: Now you know I'm going to throw something a little bit different here because when you know before I stopped preaching, this was how I interpreted it because basically that word repent means to change your mind, the metanoia, right? So so it's basically this parable is centered around thought. It's the the one person who misses the mark. And then changes his mind. The one who stumbles, but then gets up. The the one who who doesn't have his thoughts together, and the one who does. So it it really has to do with. It has nothing to do with 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 sin or 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 trying to get right or get left kind of thing. This is all about getting your mind right. And gathering your thought, basically, you can have 99 thoughts that are going in the right direction, but that one will derail you. So you want to go and get that thought, as Paul would say, bringing every thought into captivity, into the obedience of Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, I really like that, Derek. Um, I want to sort of probe the parable by detaching the shepherd from Jesus. Because that's so often the way we're we're taught that the shepherd must be Jesus. But one of the things I felt like we explored in a in a helpful way in the previous series was not making the parables an allegory. And so I'm curious who you know how else can we understand or see that shepherd uh, as well. And so I'm being very informed by my year almost a year now in Ireland and where I live there's way more sheep than people like they are just everywhere in the roads stopping cars for them and right now there's little lambs bounding around in these green fields it's flipping iconic uh that they're was, just that really,
2: really, with my appetite I'm just <laughs> yeah, they're really You're cute I know you would, I can't
0: eat them like I can't eat them um, but not a couple of months ago uh my spouse and I were we went through a gate and we closed it, but it had a gap that like we couldn't close. And uh it's I don't know, it's on this pathway, but there's just sheep all around. And like four or five sheep got out. And we don't know anything about sheep. We were like, what the what the hell do we do? Do we let them go? But like there was a busy road uh a couple of hundred feet away. And so he went and we basically sheepdogged them back through the gate. So it was it was kind of fun. But in this instance, we became these shepherds, like we didn't know what we were doing. But we became the shepherds, and so like, who else can be the shepherd besides Jesus in this in this instance?
2: Well, and, and, and w- back to what I was saying is that you are the shepherd of your own thoughts. Yeah, yeah. you are yeah. responsible for gathering your own thoughts.
1: Yeah, that's. I was gonna. I was gonna say. I think um, that's right because I mean, looking back at the text, you're right. Jesus doesn't make himself the shepherd. The way he frames it, actually, he tells it as, "Which one of you?" having the sheep doesn't go. So he he actually flips it around to say, no, you're the shepherd, right? So if you're the shepherd and you've got the sheep, then what? how would you respond? How would you react? So I guess, you know, it's again, it can be a metaphor for lots of things. I, I love the idea that you were saying, Derek, about it being uh, us kind of thinking about our thoughts. Um But yeah, it seems like if you took it that way, it could be a lot of
0: things, right? Well, and interestingly, we tend to make Jesus the shepherd, but no one Ever makes the woman searching for the lost coin Jesus, or the spirit. See, but see, I I think it is interesting though, because see, Jesus does tell these three parables
1: back to back, right? So it's the good shepherd, the spirit, uh, the woman, the woman looking for the coin, and then the father. And I actually I have uh like I've taught it that way, like because it's a weird way if you think it in a trinitarian sense. In these three parables, it's first it's the, the the good shepherd. If you want to say that's Jesus, Jesus, uh, then, and then the woman is the spirit, the spirit and then the yeah. father is God, is God the Father? So in a way, you could look at it that way. That's one possible way to frame it. If yeah, you where's it,
2: the goddamn organ when you need it.
1: <laughs> but have, true confession, I'm not a Trinitarian. Yeah. I'm just saying, I'm not sure I am either, but I, but, but that's one way. If you are looking at it from a Trinitarian perspective, then that these trio of parables, it is fascinating that it is a, let's say a young man, shepherd, a father, and then in the middle is a, is a woman, uh, father, son, spirit, you know, it, it could, it could, you could make a case that it could be read that way. Again, if you were leaning Trinitarian.
3: I don't know if I'd go that far, but I see what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I just, I've always thought it interesting, like, but I mean, think of it this way, I guess, like, uh, and I know our topic is supposed to be the, the, not, not the other two parables in the triad here, but at least in the, in the triad of parables, at least in one of them, it's, the, there's a woman, right? He does, he does put a woman in there uh as the example, rather than assuming that it's a man, a male shepherd, although, again, he flips it back around and say you, so you is anyone listening.
2: Ha, huh, you was a euphemism for sheep. You. <laughs> wow, Where's wow. that? There you go. Thank you. That was nice. This is what I want to say here is that, again, going back to thought, right? How many of you that when you finally have that aha moment, aha, the eureka, the light comes on, and suddenly you see yourself as having your shit together? You know, and and that to me is, when, when you're looking at this is like, it says, and when he comes home in verse six, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep, which was lost. In other words, I've, I've tightened up the stray thought that was derailing my purpose or my plan for my life. I've got my shit together.
1: Yeah, that, it's interesting because Again, the the analogy of a thought and that, uh, talking about an aha moment, like when you do have an aha moment, don't you sort of discard all the other thoughts you have? Like there's nothing more important in that moment than that idea. Like oh, you can't stop thinking about it. You, you want to like, bounce it off other people. Yeah. So, I mean, it, that does work in a way, I think. Um, yeah, the the one thought is compared to the, the 99 others.
3: So maybe changing gears a little bit, but... Um... Katie, I'm not going to put you on the spot and come up with a percentage, but I know in our first series, you mentioned that a large percentage of the parables had economic uh, motifs and implications. So would there, I'm just kicking it out there, would there be an economic interpretation for this one?
0: Yeah, I think it's possible, like 60% of them. And I, I think if we include, I'm not sure if people traditionally include this one or not, but I think it's valuable to point out that, um, there's a lot of sheep. A hundred sheep is, is quite a few. That's a pretty big herd. And shepherds, um, were pretty low status in the, in the ancient world as well. And so it's likely that, like, within the world of the story, the shepherd is not actually the owner. Like the shepherd is probably working for someone else. And so the loss of a sheep is is actually a pretty big deal uh, in, this, in this kind of instance. And so I'm curious if we can also see in the parable that maybe this is also a, a commentary on the rejoicing that takes place when the sheep is found. We often see that as the metaphor for the sinner. But I think in this parable, it's also like, damn, you know, we we really need the sheep for our livelihood. As well. Like, we, this is a, this is necessary and that the community rejoices over that. Like, we, sometimes I think Christians are, uh, Christian culture, we, we tend to stigmatize actually our material goods, especially middle class Christians, tend to stigmatize material goods, like, oh, we really need It's all spiritual. But if you're, um, if you're in a position where every sheep matters and every coin matters, like the parable of the lost coin, then the loss of these is a really big deal. And then another, just another thought I've had is that, um, especially for this parable and maybe for the lost coin too, Jesus does make the analogy to sinners who repent, who change their ways, uh, who change their minds. But it's not like sheep and coins willfully get lost. They're sheep and coins, they're not making choices to do that. And so in an economic interpretation, I'm just curious what y'all think about this, and we can see when people are in desperate circumstances, they're maybe not choosing that. And Jesus is saying, let's rejoice when they get material goods that will help them thrive. So one
2: take. Let, let me throw something out here, like because Katie, you, you pulled a Missy Elliott here, right? You 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 took the, uh, you took that uh you put the thing down, flipped it, and reversed it, right? And and, and this is this is really good because the, the economics uh interpretation of it is really key because think about this, right? If if, if you're thinking about an investment portfolio, right, you're, you're, the rest of your of your portfolio is hitting all eight cylinders, right? But you got this one stock, and you and you and 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 it's dragging down the performance of the portfolio. But you you spot it and you say, okay, it would be easy to just kind of cast this out, dis, or divest myself of it. But you might see some value in it beyond what's on the balance sheet, and you say okay let me let me hang on to this or let me do a little bit of research because I may be able to redeem this and and make it a an active or or vital part of my portfolio and and there are so many so many different ways because I was on the thought thing, but when you talked about economics. That's the first thing that I thought about because one of the things that we do when we invest is immediately when we start seeing the stock turn down or we see our, our real estate portfolio turn down, we want to divest ourselves of that, of, of that investment. And then what happens is we do it and then we find out, holy fuck, we, you know, this is something could have, that could have, um, you know, been a more, it could have been a productive asset. Or it, it it could have actually made us more money. So there's something else that 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 there's something regarding stewardship, ownership, and investment that's also articulated here. So I love it. I love it.
0: Nice. No 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 better compliment has ever been paid to me than to compare anything I say to Missy Elliott. Thank you. For, <laughs> that's going to make my make my week. Yes, that's that's awesome.
1: Uh, so I wanted to say what I was thinking when you were saying that, Katie. This is so fascinating because. Now, so if you frame it, the this parable in in economic terms, and again, like kind of put yourself in the place of probably a uh, someone living close to poverty, who is working for the landowner slash you working know the the sheep owner livestock. Yeah. So so now here I am. This is how I support my family. Is taking care of this master's sheep, and then I realize, oh shit, one of them is missing. Well, guess what. If I don't find that sheep, I'm dead, right? I'm screwed. I'm gonna have to make up for. I'm gonna have to maybe. I'm gonna have to pay the guy back for the missing sheep because I'm the one. Or maybe I lose my job. Maybe now I can't support my family. So the irony would be that when I find that sheep, I have saved myself, right? I've saved my family because woo, that's why I'm rejoicing. Because man, if I had found that. If I had found that sheep, I would have been screwed, right? I'm saving myself. <laughs> Forget the sheep. I'm the one that needs to be uh, is in danger here. If I don't you've find that sheep, right? Brother. So that to me, that adds a whole other element to it. And then maybe you know, by by Jesus saying it in the sense of like, you know, again as he frames it, like, which of you having you know a uh, hundred sheep, meaning like you, you're you're it's this is your job. You you've been tasked to take care of these sheep, and then you lose one. There's an element of of like anxiety and fear that people in his audience would have immediately caught on to that we wouldn't right because we we're not we're not connecting ourselves to that sort of vocation, that that sort of threat of like, oh damn, what if i don't what if I do lose this sheep that's not mine and now i'm I'm on the hook for it um that's fascinating. I think that adds a whole other layer to that parable.
3: When I think going back to the way most Christians interpret it. If Jesus is the shepherd, and I like the fact that, Katie, you put a wrinkle and said, why do we have to read Jesus as the shepherd? But most Christians would probably see that. It, it's like, well, if in most people's like framework of, of the world and eschatology and what happens, it's like Jesus is an utter failure. I mean, I think Augustine calculated like 90% of the sheep are lost. They go to hell, right? Like only 10% or 20% of people are saved and repent and come to know it's like, the 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 common Christian narrative is that Jesus came to save people, and he fails at saving most. Ooh. At least the at least the Calvinists say he didn't come to save everyone. Ooh. Well, I mean, the <laughs> Calvinist God's a dick, but at least he, at least the Calvinist God accomplishes what he came to do, right? The, but the the non-Calvinist God came and just like kind of shit the bed, <laughs> like didn't do that great, you know? It's I mean. Shame like maybe save oh yeah I gotta hit my own there you go I thought we cussed so much that we're only doing the F word. We're not, we're, we're doing,
1: we need a gauge. Like at what point does this qualify as a, as a, as a
3: <laughs> but do you, but do you see what I'm saying? Like in the common Christian interpretation of this, Jesus is not a very good shepherd. And, 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 and if, and if his God is any, I mean, any, his father is any uh, of an asshole, like, like Christians say he is like, Jesus is going to have some answering to do because <laughs> most of the sheep get away.
1: Well that's interesting. The Calvin version of that parable would be that um, you know, Jesus is a good shepherd because he saves the one and the, he loses the other ninety-nine. They all yeah. they all, yeah, they all yeah, burn in hell. Yeah. They're all lost. The the elect the the elect
2: one makes it, but those ninety those ninety-nine
1: He saved the one percent, and the other ninety-nine percent are gonna burn in hell. Yeah. Those ninety-nine are barbecue. Yeah, to hell with them. <laughs>
4: Oh,
3: delicious, delicious oh, barbecue! barbecue. Oh, listen, I, I, listen, I yummy. smoked a
2: leg of lamb for for Easter.
3: <laughs> it was, I love lamb in prep in preparation yeah. for this was terrible. Fucking awesome. terrible.
0: <laughs> so, and I was at a restaurant the other the other day, and they were serving blackface lamb, and I was like, "That's just it's too personal. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. It's too personal. I can't. Those lambs are yeah, too don't cute. Don't tell me that
1: they're for, yeah. like yeah. Don't don't tell
0: me that <laughs> blackface."
3: Yeah, is that, yeah. Is that, I
0: don't know about that yeah. restaurant. No, <laughs> no, right? It's it, it, I actually looked it up. I got so curious. It's a variety okay. of sheep. Yeah, go yeah. Say, yeah. Stamp, I stamp, know, stamp. but it's <laughs> definitely
1: <up really> bad. <laughs>
0: oh God! I,
1: I think I went to one of those restaurants in Georgia once. Yeah, the Blackface Cafe. Oh, you just Because it was under the oh, Because <laughs> it was all white
0: people. It was really weird. there were all white people there. Yeah, it's really odd.
3: Uh, where were you? <laughs>
2: I I regret (laughs) telling the story. Sorry. And and Keith says, I was born a poor black man.
3: (laughs) yes Right after our decolonizing series, too, huh?
2: I know. Look at that. I didn't learn a
1: damn thing. We've learned nothing. I've learned nothing. Sorry. I think you have to go back and re listen to that.
0: (laughs) I'm in real tears
3: here. Back on on track here. I think that ship sailed. Yeah. We're, we're off, we're off the, all right. Well, you want to land the plane? No, we got, we got, we got to have something else. Any, any last thoughts on this parable? Uh,
1: I, again, I just appreciate, I, I love being able to sit down with all you guys and, and talk about these parables because I'll be honest, at the beginning of this, I know I was looking at the parables. We had, each of us had selected some parables to, to go into the second series with it. And, and the parable of the lost sheep, I was, I was thinking, yeah, there's not going to be a lot to pull out of that because it's pretty straightforward. But I love that I'm wrong. That is like, oh my gosh, no, there is so much in this parable. I, I think now I'm a believer that we, you could pretty much take any parable and, and we could, um, you know, kind of look at it from different angles and we could find totally different ways to read it and understand it that many of these ways we've talked about it so far,
2: I think are much better ways of thinking of it than I've ever been taught before. You know, in, in college composition, I learned something uh, called explication, uh, which is which is essentially an unpacking of. And, and I really believe, and I'll, I'll be honest, right? This is me. I, and you guys know, I, I really don't have use for a whole lot of Bible stuff, but the parables to me hold a very special place in my heart because basically it's taking a really outrageous concept or, or, or outrageous subject and, and using it to teach something that's really very basic, right? In other words, going going really out on the deep end to try to make a point. So, so I'm really, when whenever we start talking about the parables and I'm really excited about the series because when, when, when I get to talk to, listen, the only time I, I really enjoy talking about anything biblical is when I'm talking to you guys, anybody else, I, I, <laughs> honestly, I could give less than a fuck, but, but when, when I'm, when I'm talking with you guys, it's like, it gives me a chance to take these things and unpack them. And show the practicality of it. Because if nothing else, if nothing else, you could say that this man, Jesus was a teacher of practical application. I think,
0: um, yeah, I love, I, I agree. I love that, Derek. I, I think the thing that's kind of occurring to me, and I'm just working it out right now as I'm, I'm, I've been looking at the parable and that, you know, the parable really ends at verse six, rejoice with me for I found my sheep that was lost. And then everything after that is commentary. The just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. I'm going back to that idea that the, you know, sheep doesn't have a lot of agency. It's not choosing to wander. And in my experience, most people, when they hurt other people, including, you know, evangelical family and friends who are, hostile to those who are deconstructing, they're not doing it to be purposely hurtful. I mean, we, we've we all had the experience where someone is trying to hurt us and, and they do so, that's different. But when people are, they're not trying to be hurtful, they just are. I feel like that, and my, myself included, when I do that, I'm I'm kind of like the sheep. I'm not deliberately... Doing something hurtful, but when I realize it as a human i 'm not a sheep, so as a human, when I realize it it's up to me to um, make that metanoia to make that turnaround like that's the repentance is doing it differently it's not it 's not about me being bad or good or anything like that it's about realizing, oh gosh, that action is actually causing harm to someone. Maybe I can do that differently
3: yeah, I think it's about awareness, and I think that's the point that's the point of like the story of Peter not. Realizing what he's doing until the rooster crows three times, it's like a, it's like a, an alarm goes off. And if we're unaware of our actions, we will go through things without thinking of them. We will hurt people and not think about our our are conse- the consequences of our actions. And we need to have that awareness and be able to change our behaviors, our minds, our thought patterns and be present with things, we be present with people, listen to people with empathy and compassion. As Derek would say, that's the ingredients of love. And, and we will go through like the pejorative sheeple unless we're aware of things.
1: Yeah. I just had a weird memory of a, of a line from a movie, and it's a really, really obscure. But if you guys have ever seen a movie called The Big Kahuna uh, with Danny DeVito, um, there's a line because it's a, it's a great it's a fascinating film because in the film there's a christian character who's sort of the goody two-shoes the evangelical christian guy and um, he kind of totally blows. like the company is going is about to go bankrupt and they need this big account they got to land this big account they're at some convention and um, it's super important for them to land this huge sale because if they if they do everybody's got a job and they, they the company continues but if they blow it, it the, everyone's going to lose their job of go going bankrupt it's over and of course the christian guy blows it because when he finally gets the meeting with the big the big account instead of selling him on the on the you know the company you know what they want to do he instead decides to share the gospel with him and of course doesn't win him to christ and doesn't win the account and so blows everything and um it, there's a great scene there where danny danny devito's character is talking to the christian guy and he's like uh talking about um talking about you know character and things like this and and having regrets and all these kind of things and how this adds to your character and things like that. And the guy says, are you saying, so the Christian guy says something like, um, so you're saying until I have something to regret, I, I can't really have a true character. And he says, oh no, I'm saying you've already done plenty of things to regret. You just don't know what they are. And it's when you discover them, then you will see this horrible thing you've done and you wish that you could do it over again, but you'll know that you can't. And so then you pick this up and you carry it with you. And then that's that's this regret that adds to this character, and we've all done that, right? We've all been in that place, we've all said something we didn't intend. we've all hurt people that we love, whether you know intentionally or unintentionally, and then you've got this, and this that becomes this thing where yeah you you have to that's that that's such true repentance of like, damn, I wish I could do that over again, uh, I wish I could make that right, and quite often we can't, right,
3: yeah. Well, good. This has been a good way to kick off our series. I'm I'm glad that uh, that we picked something seemingly so simple, and that we've extracted much more depth. and And I'm sure that we're going to do that for the next uh, three episodes and and into our own parables, which will be a highlight to the series. Um, but before we move on, before we close down this shop, uh, we have a website, heretichappyhour dot com. Yes, we still have a bookstore. Yes, most of the books on there are 15% off what you're going to find elsewhere. And they feature our former uh, Heretics of the Week. So go check out heretichappyhour.com. Check out the store. Check out the uh, the bookstore and the, the t-shirt shop merch store. And uh, yeah, tell your friends.
0: Cool. We also have a free Facebook group. That's for all heretics at all levels of deconstructing. So join us in Heresy After Hours. All four of us are in there. You, you can tag us, ask questions. And uh, there's always funny jokes uh, that are happening, uh, including some sheep once in a while. So come and join Heresy After Hours and let the conversation continue. Oh, yeah. And if you, if you love the
1: Heretic Happy Hour podcast, listen, we know, we understand. Uh, and we appreciate that you love the, the Heritage Happy Hour podcast. And if you really, really, really love the podcast, um, we would invite you to support what we do over on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Heritage Happy Hour. Um, you, when you do support us at any level, you unlock all kinds of amazing stuff that's already up there for you to check out. Um, and if you do support us, let me just say, thank you so very much. We really appreciate it. And that means you get to be in the private Facebook group only for Patreon supporters at uh, the Heretic Capyar Facebook group. And that's where even more, you you can ask questions, you have direct access to us. Um, We post really cool things in there as well. So um, thank you all who do support us. And if you don't yet, go over to patreon.com and please consider supporting your favorite podcast.
2: Yeah. Think about that Patreon group as the champagne room.
1: You know, there you go. We
2: get, you, you get to have your favorite heretics do really cool things for you. <laughs> now you're making me nervous. <laughs> I
3: don't know. What have you posted in there? I haven't looked. I'm afraid.
2: <laughs> if you really love the Heretic Happy Hour, please go to iTunes and give us the proverbial five-star rating. And in doing so, you will not be that one sheep that winds up on the barbecue grill. There you go. <laughs> what a what a what a mental picture. And the
1: sheep on the barbecue grill. That's great. Sheep
2: on the barbie, mate.
1: Throw <laughs> another sheep on the barbie. <laughs>